Investors Chronicle. Welcome to the Companies and Markets show. It's Tuesday the 7th of November as we record. Scheduling issues mean we're a little early with the recording this week, so we'll have to trust to fate that nothing too significant happens between now and Friday. Anyway, I am Dan Jones, Deputy Editor at the IC, back in the hot seat today after two weeks across the pond. And we'll be turning to the US later on in the show to discuss this week's cover story, which is all about the world's biggest company, Apple. It's a stock that very few investors can completely avoid, and nor would they have wanted to over the past few decades. But it's arguably due a more testing time in the months ahead. We'll look at the new challenges it faces and ask whether the valuation still stacks up. We're also going to examine the fate of large companies in general, among other things, as we discuss another of our features this week, which looks at the possible limits to corporate growth. Before all that, though, we will be running the rule over Associated British Foods annual results out this morning, in which news of Primark's relative resilience seems to have helped cheer investors. Joining me to discuss all of this are, first of all, two recent home movers, Mark Robinson, who's moved just down the road in his village. Hi, Mark. Indeed. Welcome back, Dan. Thank you. And heading further afield, Arthur Sants, who joins us over the line from New York, where he's now in situ as our US companies reporter. Hi, Arthur. Hey, Dan. And with me in the studio, Gemma Slingo. Hi, Gemma. Hi, Dan. Associated British Foods, then. We'll begin with them and with you, Mark. As I mentioned just now, the results have been received fairly positively this morning. Uh, you know, there's a buyback yeah. in there. There's a special dividend. There's lots for investors to enjoy, in short. Yeah, so warmly received, to say the least. Uh, the last time I looked, the, the shares are up uh, by 6.8%, which is a pretty decent increase given that uh, ABF had uh, foreshadowed the results uh, midway through September. There was progress across uh, across the board for the group as well on a like-for-like -like basis. Revenues, Group revenues as a whole were up by about 16% to just under £20 billion. Uh, which management put down to uh, pricing actions, and we'll get on to those in, in a moment. The group also, as you say, added a 12.7p special dividend to the final, uh, which uh, equates to a full-year payout of 60p, or a 37% increase year-on-year. And there was a £500 million share buyback announced as well, another one there. If I was to... Uh, summarize the results in one sentence, I would say that the group has prioritized revenues and volumes above uh, unit profitability, uh, or although they didn't sacrifice profits uh, in, in total. So yeah, uh, it's, it's a little wonder that the share price uh, reacted so positively this morning. ABF is, of course, a many-headed beast, as it were. You know, there is Primark in there, as I mentioned. There's also the grocery business, the, the sugar business, the ingredients business is a slightly smaller scale as well. How, how are all of them, uh, insofar as you can sum them all up quickly, but how are they all respectively faring at the moment? Yeah, sure. I mean, a, a lot of the focus uh, centred on Primark as well because their sales account for just under half of uh, the group total. Mm. Re revenues grew very strongly, 17% there. And, and that reflected uh, the point I made earlier, the fact that they decided to pass on only part of uh, the input cost increases to, to customers. So you had a situation there where the operating margin in retail it dropped from 9.8% to 8.2%, but 
but Boss had said that because they've seen such a a marked decrease in input costs and freight costs in 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 recent times as well, they expect that to move above the ten percent market in fairly short order. So next year as well, Primark's going to be helped along with the fact that they're adding another one million square feet to, to their uh, to their their stores. And uh, they're expecting modest levels of like-for-like -like sales growth, which is understandable given general economic conditions. And um, yeah, we, we should see uh, an increase in unit profitability there because of those uh, reductions in uh, raw materials and freight costs. The grocery business, uh, another good performance there, double-digit uh, revenue growth. But again, they repeated this thing where relative uh, profits didn't grow at the same rate. Now, this could reflect an inherent lag between input cost increases and and the pass through to customers or or like Primark and I and I suspect it may uh, this could be the main reason uh, an explicit decision had been taken to sacrifice a degree of unit profitability in a bid to show up those volumes. The sugar business was probably but uh, it was still a profitable um, it was still a profitable period for it and there was a like a, a really large increase in uh, revenues, but that was, you know, it's a commodities-based business, so it was down to higher sugar pricing. Uh, the contribution from sales prices was offset to a large degree by high costs for uh, beet cane and energy. And specifically that meant that uh, the company needed to buy and import sugar to make good on a shortfall in uh, UK and European sugar beet production. So there you have it. It's quite an interesting, you wouldn't necessarily uh, class ABF as a conglomerate, but uh, there are a lot of moving parts there. It's interesting you use that word, uh, conglomerate, we might return to that later on in, in the show. But uh, mm. uh, let's talk about Primark. As you say, it's the biggest part of the business. And, um, you know, that margin uh, reassurance, uh, I think, has helped today as well. I'm sure the special dividend is doing a lot of the heavy lifting. But, but I think that helped investors who are concerned about you know, whether that would get back to 10% plus, which they've said uh, it, it should do next year. The, there's still the question of whether it can get to, you know, the older levels, I think, of more like 11 or 12%. But yeah. you talk about the volume strategy, which is maybe a little bit different to some peers or some consumer-facing companies this year who, or in the past couple of years who've been pushing through some quite big price hikes. It, it's undoubtedly working, though, and maybe that's in contrast with Primark, with some of the other low-cost retailers we've seen in, in recent weeks and months, you know, this strategy yeah. is working. Yeah, I mean, I, but I was thinking in terms of the, the fast fashion uh, retailers, uh, mm. you mentioned that too as well, because, I mean, they, they've been very high-profile high fails in recent times as well. But as, as you said, that, you know, Primark is essentially, it's a different uh, proposition. It's, it's based on value for money rather than, any vagaries associated with the fashion markets. In fact, in certain respects, uh, and this will probably appeal to uh, older listeners out there, I, I think Primark's place in the market is uh, similar to what uh, uh, Marks and Spencer enjoyed in the 1970s and 80s, in that it was more or less the default option in terms of apparel necessities, um, socks, uh, underwear, jumpers, that sort of thing. It, it is in a fashion statement and such. and so. From that angle, uh, you you would imagine that uh, sales would would hold up a little better. I, it sort of strikes me as well. I mean, it's far too soon to say. Primark's had its up and downs. It's doing quite well at the moment. But you know, another company, which again we might mention later on, next 
you know, in terms of a, a retailer who can do things through thick and thin. That's clearly the the kind of business you would imagine that most retailers, most uh, clothing retailers would aspire to be. Are there any kind of similarities there or is that just me jumping from one good set of results to a company that's done it through thick and thin? Uh, well, actually, I've, I've lost count of the number of times that people have been surprised, pleasantly surprised by Nexus results because they seem to have outperformed the markets during periods where other uh fashion retailers let, let, let's not forget as well there was slow on the uptake as far as online uh, uh, retail goes as well but I think next uh, just provide an extraordinary uh, example you know I, I, I think they've been one of the stars of the FTSE over the last 20 odd years or 30 years however long they've been going now and there's no reason why that shouldn't change but again it, it's about you I guess you could say it's about your proposition as well. Indeed. Uh, one thing uh, I think you wanted to pick up on is customer loyalty. And maybe if we just preface this by by talking about the, the Primark margin again and the, the volumes, because a lot of companies, have, again, over the past 18 months, you know, maybe more so in the Staples space in particular, but have been prioritizing price over volume. And, and as those pricing tailwinds for them, start to, to fade, you know, volumes become more important. So maybe the companies that are already putting the work in on volumes will be stood in better stead. But then I think you, you know, have some points to make about brand loyalty and how that feeds in as well. Well, yeah, I, I just think, you know, we, we're still in the midst of the cost of living crisis at the moment. Or, although, as I mentioned before, those inputs are obviously coming down. You know, we get that from different quarters. But um, I, I think I think people may need to re recalibrate their assumptions on the subject of brand loyalty after we get through this period as well because it must have been the, the first time in, in several decades since we've had such a lengthy period of price rises too. Now if you if you look at a, a company like APF it, it differs from others. I mean it, it has got some high profile uh, brands such as Twinings and Kingsmill, Patax, uh, uh, the, the, the range of curry sources but it isn't it isn't reliant on them to the same degree as other companies such as, um, say, Nestle or uh, Procter & Gamble or, or, in fact, uh, Unilever. Uh, part of the attraction uh, or the investment rationale for these types of companies is because of the strength of their brands and they provide a sort of an inbuilt moat, as it's sometimes said as well. And part of the reason there is because they were seen to be generally price inelastic you know if you're going down to your local tesco you're you're not going to mind paying a few extra pence for uh, a jar of um a bovril or some Heinz salad cream you know the strength of those brands engender sort of uh, loyalty however given the lengthy period of inflationary pressure there are signs that that may be dissipating to a certain degree and it's it's not just based on anecdotal evidence that i that i um this claim, but I've read a couple of articles recently, one from the Gross as well, which indicates that um, consumers, because of stretch household budgets, are increasingly likely now to, to look out for a generic alternative in many cases. And this also may reflect to a certain degree the influence of the German discounters. Now, whether this plays out over the, the long run when, when prices um, uh, uh, moderate uh, is yet to be seen, but it's certainly if you're invested in that space or are thinking of investing in either um, you know household goods or uh, or 
food retail, it's worth keeping in mind. The only other thing as well that's worth mentioning, another change, not necessarily related to the inflation, but it's a, it's a knock-on effect from the pandemic, is that uh, companies like Procter & Gamble and Unilever uh, are reducing the number of brands that they're bringing to market. This came about initially because of uh, the, the disruption to supply chains during the pandemic. It was uh, they decided to build more uh, reliable models in there. Uh, and I think they've found out since is that uh, a lot of revenues and a lot of profitability comes from a, a relatively narrow band of products for all of these companies. So that's that's going to play out as we go forward as well. So anyway, just yeah. those two things are worth keeping in mind. Indeed, indeed. Primark, you know, slightly different, of course, in some of those aspects, but but I think a yeah. lot of them still boil down to clearly the fate of the consumer into 2024 and, you know, whether they can they can keep spending on, on what they're currently spending on. Uh, but on Primark, on ABF, uh, a final word maybe on valuation. You know, the shares yeah. have had a very good run over the last year. That said, you know, the PE ratio is kind of back to where it was a couple of years ago. So, um, you know, how, how do you see the, the valuation case? Yeah, I mean, as you say, the, the shares are up by about 56% over the last 12 months, including today's increase too. And uh, hopefully we're reading, uh, reading from the same hymn sheet here. I've got them on a board rating of 13.5 times. That comes with a dividend yield of 2.4%, which goes up to 2.7% when the, the special is included. Um, that's at the That forward rating's at the top of the range over the last over the past year, but by the same token, its peg ratio has also improved there. So it may be that the rating could be justified by growth prospects. If you go back, um, there was, there was a, it's interesting, there was a positive technical signal on the share price going back as early as the 4th of January, and it, it took off after that as well. But now we're in a situation where the, the short and long-term moving averages are sort of starting to coalesce and that could imply that the share price may be losing momentum uh, at least on the short term so uh, you know it's you know it's not screaming value at the moment i mean it definitely falls under the uh, the the value heading i think in terms of uh, if you were to add it to your portfolio but I, i'd say at the moment we probably everything's in the share price as things stand well let's move on now to apple which is our cover story this week. A deep dive into the company and its prospects. Arthur, you uh, have written the piece. Now, clearly, well, why don't we start with the results that Apple itself had last week? Uh, how do they look? How has it fared this year? And then we'll get on to, you know, the, the forward-looking case and some of the threats now facing the business. Yeah, hi, Dan. Um, <clears throat> it was kind of an interesting set of results because they beat... Um, their earnings were good, their profitability, but there was some dis disappointment and the reason was because product part of the business so wearables ipad and iphone didn't do as well as expected particularly because mac and ipad was, were down a lot but the services part of the business did better than expected and services was um is sorry much more high much higher margin than the product part of the business so that was good for profitability so there's sort of I guess it's like depends on where you want to look at it, and it's kind of a microcosm of what the debate around Apple is at the moment, which is that the products part of the business, at least last year, was getting smaller. iPhone was did all right; um, it was up slightly, but it's sort of 
while the services side of the business is growing double digits and is really strong. Product still makes up the most of the business. I think services was 22% last year for the whole year and product was the rest. If services can keep taking a larger portion of the business, then profitability will grow. It's gross margins at like 70%, which is where, which is deep, well above the sort of 40% group average. So I guess it depends sort of which way you want to look at it, whether it was a positive or negative set of results. As you say, the the services side, you know, it's trying to put more focus on there uh, because it is a smaller, albeit higher margin and, and growing faster part of this business. But the, but the main overriding reason, I suppose, that it is trying to focus on that side is because the product side is slowing down. And, you know, that's not uh, necessarily a bad thing insofar as, you know, the iPhone sales have really driven Apple forward for, for years and years now, haven't they? Um but then it may be that we're coming to the end, or potentially some people think we're coming to the end of that kind of growth phase. We can get into some of the uh, structural reasons perhaps in a minute, but uh, there are also some some factors to consider in terms of China, for one, which has been a big growth market for Apple in the last few years in particular with iPhone sales. Some other external factors which might mean that those sales and sales growth is harder to come by in the next few years. Yeah, so the China point is interesting and there's one very specific story around china which is huawei so in 2019 when they put the sanctions on huawei because of the worries about 5g um they stopped being able to use us suppliers for their phones and they they fell way behind apple and apple stepped in and took up a bunch of their market share as the sort of high-end smartphone in china and china last quarter was 17% of Apple's revenue, so significant, and the third largest market behind Europe and um, the United States. But in a couple months ago, Huawei released a new phone, which had um, it's like a seven nanometer 5G chip in it. Um, basically, it's like a, the first time in the most advanced chip they've been able to make under the sanctions. And they did it by using their chip manufacturer used one which is Chinese based use one of like the older ASML photolithography photolithography machines and I guess we they, it, people were shocked they didn't think they were going to be able to make such a high-end chip and they put it in their new phone and that phone's been selling really well the new Huawei phone in China it was um and now the concern is that sort of Chinese patriotism it was sort of hyped on Chinese internet as this big advance for Chinese technology. And Jeffries thinks that this is going to be bad for Apple. And their, so their projections were, for, so last year, Huawei had a 7.7% of the Chinese market um, compared to 16.8% for the iPhone in the smartphone market. But by 2026, Huawei is going to jump from 77 to 25% of the market share, while Apple is going to go from 16.8% down to 11% in 2026. At least that was Jeffries projections and because this new chip is being made on these older machines the yield at the moment isn't that great basically that means that they're making more chips that don't work but the belief is that sort of once they get reps in and keep practicing making these chips they'll be able to start being able to increase the supply the issue for Huawei at the moment is not demand people really want these phones in China it's supply but as supply goes up that'll give them more capacity to take market share away from Apple. So China is a concern and could be a 
big headwind for Apple moving forward. Yeah, we'll get on to some of the maybe more positive or potential positives in, in a moment, because of course, you know, this is a company famed for for its innovation and for, uh, you know, confounding the doubters, perhaps. But with the iPhone as well, there is this separate issue of the, the replacement cycle, uh, albeit this was something people were concerned about a few years ago, I think, you know, back in just pre-pandemic, thinking, you know, well, everyone's got an iPhone now, or everyone's got a smartphone, the market is pretty saturated, where is growth going to come from? Apple really proved them wrong in that case, uh, you know, partly through its own uh, efforts and partly perhaps through the pandemic, which gave people a lot of uh, extra cash to spend and allowed people to upgrade to 5G models, which, you know, they hadn't upgraded their phones for a few years. And that really drove growth for the past few years. But now again, it seems we're at this point where we're, we're thinking, you know, how many more iPhones or how many more iPhones in excess of current levels can be sold? And an additional concern is this replacement cycle and how often people want to or are capable of, you know, changing their phones, upgrading them. Yeah, so the question is whether smartphones will sort of follow the personal computer route, which is at the moment, as you can see with Mac sales, which are down significantly. Once everyone got a personal computer, they just stop upgrading it as regularly. And if basically, if you're not, if everyone has it and you're not upgrading it every year, growth would sort of slow. Like you need to be upgrading unless you're bringing in new people, taking them from other companies, or um, you need people changing, upgrading their products fairly regularly. And generally, it's the upgrade cycle is nearer to two years. Um, obviously, the as you said, the pandemic, it's hard to kind of obscures what's going on a bit, because during the pandemic, people did upgrade their consumer electronics. Um, they were on them a lot, and they wanted they had bunches of cash, as you said. So the comparators at the moment are tricky. Like if everyone upgraded in 2021, it means that uh, 2023 was going to be a trickier year because everyone had up-to-date electronics. The analysts, I know Jeffries are saying that they seem to be leaning more towards uh, the fact that maybe Mac and the um, was a possible sort of negative precursor and that it sort of might head down towards that direction. There's like a sort of theory that each generation of computing produces more I, units. So, for example, if with personal computer, every family might have like one or two in their house. And then when we moved on to a smartphone, everyone got their own smartphone. So, it was sort of exponential growth. And then there was the hope that then people would all buy wearables. So, they'd start having like watches and smaller computer items on them. And then that would cause a bunch of extra growth. But wearables is still a pretty small component of Apple's business. iPhone still makes up over 50% of its sales. So if they, are, if they can't find extra growth there, then um, just compared to a decade ago when iPhone was sweeping the world, it's going to be it's going to be trickier, at least, like especially against those comparators from 2011, 2012, 2013. Yeah, in the, the recent figures, the, the full year results the other day, you know, Apple's first revenue decline overall since 2019. You know, iPhone struggles were, were an aspect of that. Clearly, it's such a big part of their sales still. I mean, there are there are some positives even on that front, I think, aren't there? There's the case that, you know, there are still some people who are apparently needing to replace and coming up to doing so. And uh, there's a new iPhone model out. 
There's also been a lot of talk about, uh, you know, younger generations in the US really shifting away from Android and towards iPhone more than older generations are, you know, being even more of a status symbol, which could be a, a tailwind too. But but the other potential positives we talk about in the piece are, are in part related to the services side of the business and what it's trying to do there and how it's trying to, to make sure that double digit growth can keep, you know, charging ahead. Yeah, so I can, I mean, yeah, saying lots of negative things, but there are lots of positive things. They're the most successful company ever. Um, so they're pretty good at, they're pretty good at making money. Um, yeah, so they got this new iPhone um, that came out and it came out in September. So it barely has had an opportunity to have a big impact on sales. So we'd expect the coming quarters to see um, how popular the phone is. And actually, I went into the Apple store here in New York earlier this week. I lost one of my my earbuds and needed it replaced a the experience was great they were all i was like super impressed and they were all really friendly and then i was chatting to the chatting to the person in the shop and asking how popular the new iphone was and whether i could get one and most of the apart from some like ridiculous colors all of them were sold out so and the shop was rammed so it's hardly like they're not they're not struggling and it's just sort of a question of valuations which we'll get onto in a bit but the good thing about the new phone, or at least what they're pushing, is it has a new chip, and it's they call it it's an A17 chip, is what they call it, and that's a three nanometer chip. And if you remember, I said that Huawei's was a seven nanometer chip, which means that Apple's technology is way ahead of theirs. And the main benefit of this new chip, which they design in-house themselves, um, which is important because it means they can line up their whole strategy in terms of they have their own software, the iOS. They now design all their own hardware, and Going forward with AI, the hope is that it means they'll be able to create um, an AI app store, which is what one analyst told me. He thought it might happen as early as next year. And that means that if you're creating sort of, you're a developer and you want to create an app for the phone, you can go into their app store, use their own um, AI model and create apps around that. And the benefit of having designing their own chips means that they can make high-end chips that can do the sort of AI processing on the Mac or, the, or their iPhone. And also the main benefit of this chip that they have in this phone, new phone that's just been released is it's really great for video games, which even if you aren't a gamer yourself, a lot of the younger generation obviously are. And as you said, it's becoming more popular with sort of the younger generation in the US. And if they can get more of the, the gaming community, that's only going to be a good thing. And it sort of ties into the services point, which is that services revenue is highly recurring. Um, they get a massive wedge of all the sales that go through the app store towards 30%. They have some personal contracts with other companies, but it's it's a really high, high chunk. And gaming, if they can get more people buying games through the app store and gaming on the phone, then that's going to boost their services revenue and increase the high margin recurring nature of that, which Sort of dollar for dollar, those service revenues are much better than the product revenues because they, they keep coming in and um, you don't have to worry about sort of cyclical nature that we've seen with their, with their products division in the last year. Indeed, indeed. We're going to need to move on shortly, but let's finish again by talking about valuation here. I mean, Apple, you know, it's still a huge cash generator. It's still going to be generating vast amounts of cash. It has a big cash pile. You know, the, these are all things uh, in its favor. But when you look at some of the headwinds and when you look at the, the valuation, you know, how, how does that 
valuation in, in and of itself compare maybe with peers and with recent history and, and you know what can we learn from it perhaps yeah this is the, always the trickiest bit isn't it they the thing about apple is they which is that they are expensive at the moment historically they're 27 times forward earnings which is basically as expensive as it's ever been it was a bit higher in during the pandemic but only fractionally and then when you look back to a decade ago when it was trading in the teens it's like much higher than it, it was then and then you think what are its prospects compared to a decade ago i guess it's always it's easier with hindsight to say that obviously this iphone was going to be insanely popular but back in 2014 the iphone was still really popular it seemed obvious maybe that iphone was was going to be it was, it was going to keep growing and now apple's worth a lot more than that yeah it's had a year where it hasn't had any revenue growth it's a company that can reinvent itself right and it did that before with the iphone and now it's trying to do that again with it has this new headset coming out as well the vision pro and the services part of the business it's this obviously if that can go up from around a fifth or a quarter of the revenue which it is now up towards 50 percent say then suddenly the valuation probably looks a bit more reasonable compared to its peers it's a little bit cheaper than microsoft which is on 30 times forward earnings but Microsoft had a lot more growth last year and has a really tangible AI story that's already bringing in revenue. And its cloud computing division as a grew 29% year on year last quarter. So they've got Microsoft's a little less profitable in terms of some um, return on equity, but it's got a lot more top line growth. And then compared to Google and then Apple, but Apple's a lot more expensive than Google and Meta. They aren't like for like comparators, but um, Google and Meta are on 20 and 19 times earnings respectively. I would say that looking historically against a decade ago, it definitely looks on the expensive side. There's a little, I guess there's always a little bit of hedging and uh, Warren Buffett's Berkshire Hathaway has like a third of its portfolio invested in Apple. So I know people are loath to bet against him, but given everything that's going on, given all the headwinds, given interest rates are much higher, you just would expect its valuations to be a bit lower than they were in the middle of the pandemic or not sort of double what they were a decade ago, I think. Indeed. As I say, that is the cover story this week. So you can find out more on all the issues we've just discussed in the magazine and online uh, as of Friday. We should, though, go to our final section of the week. And it does tie in with Apple, because as I said at the top, Apple is a, a stock that's hard to avoid, even if you want to. You know, it's it's. 5% of the MSCI World Index is 7% of the S&P, and that is a testament to its uh, ability to you know, keep growing, to reinvent itself. Equally, it means if you're, if you're a passive holder, holder of passive funds, you're going to have exposure. If you're a holder of active funds, you're going to have exposure because they don't want to take that much benchmark risk by avoiding it entirely. So the vast majority of investors will have some kind of exposure to it. And that is what happens when you are the world's largest company. Equally, Gemma, there are sometimes limits to growth, particularly if you are very large. Uh, you've been looking at that this week from a number of different aspects, not just the very biggest companies, but why don't we start with them? Can we've just discussed Apple. Uh, why don't we discuss this paper, the, the winner's curse, as it's called, you know, the difficulty of staying on top. So, yeah, I was looking at, I came across this paper when I was doing some research for the feature, and it basically puts forward the argument that once you reach the very top of an industry, you're likely to start underperforming very soon. And it gives various reasons for it. So regulators might be out to get you. The smaller companies are absolutely out to unseat you. Um, 
or as Arthur was talking about in relation to Apple, it just gets harder and harder to grow once you get so massive. Basically, the report tracked over a number of decades how these these top dog companies, as it described them, has changed. It's sort of identified this real, I guess, just real churn at the top, which actually, it just makes you think, maybe the status quo as we know it today isn't going to last that much longer. It just, it put an interesting perspective on the market, which I hadn't really, really thought about before. Yeah, uh, in some ways, I imagine this is, you know, the the philosophy of the the economic system in which we, we all live, right? And that, you know, creative destruction can help these companies get to the top and it can help them reinvent themselves. But equally, it means there are always threats and, and always changes that we don't foresee, perhaps. And in 10, 20 years time, there can be different companies at the top and there they usually are. But it's not just about the very biggest. It's also about the, the feature itself this is. It's also about how to sustain growth even at lower levels and how companies can sometimes, you know, attempt to do that by branching out into areas that, that cause them to lose focus or areas with which they're not as familiar and therefore things can go awry as well. I think so. So when I'm reading companies' results, management teams are absolutely obsessed with getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And I think sometimes it is worth pausing and thinking, is actually that process of getting bigger always a positive one? So in the piece, I look at a few FTSE 100 companies, which are obviously very successful, very mature. Um, but they, some of them have really become unstuck when they're thinking about future growth. So moving into America is often something that, that crops up not just at the IC, as Arthur has done, but in company company boardrooms as well. Um, and I think that it's, there's often this thought, well, you know, the market's huge in America, we can make loads of, loads of headway, but often the execution risks involved are massive. So one of the companies I look at is Tesco, obviously a very large supermarket. Um, back in about 2007, it had this, this idea to move into North America and it just was a complete disaster and completely abandoned by 2013. So I think there are these real execution risks once you reach a certain size. And it does seem as you get bigger, the threat of smaller, more nimble companies just just expands, really. Again, it's an interesting point, isn't it? Because there are, you know, clearly if you're management, you want to grow EPS, you want to keep your share price rising. And to do that, you've got to you've got to show that growth and that expansion. But equally, as you point out, that's often easier said than done. Uh, another example, perhaps, of, of where the the execution risk meets with a a valuation risk if you're a company who's done very well and grown very fast and you're trying to keep that going is is perhaps rent-a-kill as we we saw recently it's digesting this big u.s acquisition terminix and you know the business still seems to be doing pretty well operationally but its valuation has been bid up over the years and you know it was just a few weeks ago when it made the first kind of hint of of you know, tougher times for that business in the US in the, the market, which it's really uh, expanded into with this acquisition. And that you know, hit the share price very hard. And again, that shows perhaps, you know, how much is at stake with these big deals and, and with moving into the US as well. Yeah, I think massive acquisitions are a real tricky thing to, to know how to deal with when you're an investor, particularly a retail investor. And Rentical obviously made this really big, big acquisition with Terminix. Um, which is a pest control giant based in North America. And you can just see by the extremity of that reaction when it put out its Q3s and said, oh, the North American market's a little bit a little bit weak, um, that investors are still very nervous about it. And I think it's just hard to know when a company comes out saying it's making such a big purchase to be able to 
to foresee what will happen and how it will make all those cost savings that it's promising, how it will integrate the systems. Um, but there is this big body of research, which I look at briefly in my piece, showing how M&A often pans out and often it's, it's not great. Obviously, we don't know whether that will happen with Rent-A-Kill, but it's definitely something to bear in mind when management teams come out with these extremely excited statements about how they're going to massively grow with this acquisition. It's, I don't know, sometimes I think it should set off alarm bells. Mm. We, we we had our feature earlier this year, as you mentioned, the piece, you know, the, the M&A masters, the ones who do the buy and build, the regular, perhaps, you know, slightly smaller acquisitions, but... But yes, there's no doubt that the M&A can be quite value destructive a lot of the time. To wrap things up and to bring things back to the beginning of the show, uh, it was an interesting part you mentioned about Next. Next, you know, normally has some interesting commentary. And they were talking about their growth plans, but also how they've tried to restrain themselves in some ways. Yeah, so if any listeners follow Next, they'll know that it puts out huge company updates. Even if it's just a half-year result, they put a big old document out there, which has a lot of self-reflection in it, really, which is helpful. And in its half-year results, it, it said it risked becoming an unwieldy retail conglomerate that lacks focus and agility. Um, and I just I was really struck by that comment because it was both quite frank and also quite accurate, I think, because it then went to look at various different companies that had failed because they got too big in the retail sector. Um, and it's interesting to think about whether retailers are specific with that problem, you know, the, the issues of growing brands and becoming too mainstream or, I don't know, losing touch with their end consumers. But it was just an interesting comment, I think, and did make me reflect on, on the industry more generally. And, yeah, coming back to Associated British Foods, thinking about how that will play out in future years. Yeah, it did remind me a little of ABF. Uh, clearly, it's, if you want to call it a mini conglomerate, if we don't accept the term as Mark uh, didn't earlier. And, you know, it's not just retail. It's more about the retail business and other sides to it. But, you know, it rings those bells. But nonetheless, ABF, as we said at the top, is doing pretty well at the moment itself. So there are many ways to, uh, uh, you know, for the cookie to crumble, shall we say. We have, though, reached the end of the show. So thank you very much to Gemma, to Arthur, to Mark. And thank you to you for listening. We'll see you next week on another Companies and Markets show. 